everyone, and welcome to the Bubble Hour, where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. I'm Jean McCarthy. I write the blog Unpickled, where I've been telling my story of life after alcohol since my first day of sobriety in 2011. I tell my story there, and I invite you to share your story here. And today on the podcast, I'm really excited to introduce you to a new friend of mine, someone I met uh, at a retreat in December, and you've actually heard her voice a little bit because uh, she was on a number of episodes that I posted at the end of uh, season seven, actually the first few episodes in um, season eight, one called How They Did It, and then there were some Christmas episodes. Um, at the end of season seven as well. So you have met this lady already if you're a regular listener of this show, but today you're going to get to know her a little bit better. It's my friend Kathy Robin, who is a psychotherapist and certified recovery coach and also a woman in successful long-term recovery herself. She has got a heart of gold and she's one of those ladies who really sees people. You see it in every interaction that she has. You can tell she sees the good in people and she's so darn interested in learning from others and in sharing the things that she has learned that have changed her life. So I'm really excited to chat with her today, not only to hear her story, but also because some friends of mine in recovery sent me questions. I said, what would you like to ask a therapist who's in recovery about her recovery or your recovery? So I had a list of questions that uh, friends sent in, and I'm really grateful to everyone who did, uh, because I think it's going to make for quite an interesting discussion. So, Kathy, hello, and welcome to the Bubble Hour. Hi, Jean. Hello. Hi. Wonderful it's to so be nice here. It's so nice to hear you. Oh, I'm glad you're here. We've talked about having a longer discussion for a while, and uh, I'm glad that I snagged you for an hour today. We were just talking before the recording started that the sunshine is finally coming, spring is on the horizon, and that winter was uh, a little dark this year. I feel like a lot of us have the blues this winter, so... Mm-hmm. Spring is welcome, isn't it? It certainly is. It certainly is welcome here on Cape Cod because it can be yeah. it can be very gray and dark in January and February. I do like the natural light, and we actually have a beautiful blue sky today. So it really makes a difference, doesn't it? It does. It when the sunshine does. is out. And I'd have to say uh, that you know my one of my rules is is get outside every day even if it's just to go around the block or walk down to the mailbox, just spend some time outside every day. For me, it right sizes me. It reminds me that the sky is big and I'm small. And so yeah. are my <laughs> Enough with my small talk. This is me just having a tea and excited to chat with you. We have a job to do here and that's have you share your story and answer uh, some questions for me. So let's start by getting to know you a little bit, Kathy. Tell us about you and tell us about your story. Well, thank you. Um, As Jean said, my name is Kathy Robbins, and I live in Cape Cod, Massachusetts. And I grew up in a suburb of Boston, a town called Milton. And believe it or not, I'm one of 13 children. And I consider myself a woman in long-term recovery. 33 years ago, I walked into my first 12-step meeting for the friends and family of And two years later, I gave up alcohol myself. I'm 31 years. I can hardly believe it. Alcohol-free. And I have also been in recovery from a food disorder, mainly sugar addiction. 
And I would say the single best decision I ever made in my life was entering the world of recovery. That was definitely a defining moment. And my life is an example of the power of addiction and the promise of recovery. I credit the decision to ask for help for me having the life that I have, both my internal life and my external life, both professionally and personally, and physically, mentally, and spiritually. As Jean said, I'm a licensed psychotherapist and a certified life coach, and I added the She Recovers Coach designation this year. And I'm passionate about seeing women design lives that they love, including myself, and living it. That's really important to me. And when I stopped drinking, I stopped going along to get along. You know, I grew up in this big Irish Catholic family, and there was really the message, particularly for the women of my generation, was to go be a good sport and go along to get along. And I feel like giving up drinking, really, I got my power back. And I, instead of just surviving and, and living out the script that was handed to me, I really started to survive. I started to thrive. And I went back to graduate school, and I started a whole new career. But I'm getting a little ahead of myself. I just wanted to give you a little bit of that information before I started telling you a little bit more about my story. As I said, I grew up in this big Irish Catholic family, and there was multi-generational addiction in that family system. There was a lot of good things, but there was also a lot of secrecy and silence, and let's not talk about that. And, you know, I think we all have defining moments in our lives, and one of the defining moments in my life, there's been a couple, but in my childhood, a defining moment was when I was eight years old, I feel like I had this spiritual experience. You know, I was brought up Catholic, and there was this idea that you had a guardian angel, and I remember my guardian angel talked to me, and she told me she loved me and that she was with me. And that I don't think I told, I don't think I told anybody about this at the time, but I never forgot. And I've always had this feeling that someone or something has been with me and guiding my journey. And that's really been a very, very helpful part of my story. And I don't know, you know, quite what it is, but it's this force, this, I think this life energy that we probably, I think we all have, but I believe that it was something that I got in touch with when I was eight years old. And it really has guided me in my life. So that was a defining moment. And then another defining moment was when my mother shared with me that my paternal grandmother was an alcoholic. And I was 14 years old. And um, I don't know if she, why she felt that was an important thing to tell me, but she took me aside and wanted me to know that we had alcoholism in our family system. I had not been doing, you know, had done any drinking at that point, but I remember thinking, wow. And she also, and I also knew she was a wonderful person. And my mother said that too. She said she was a wonderful person, but this, as my mother said, problem really did get in the way of her having the kind of life she really wanted to have because she was killed, uh, which was also a defining moment. She was killed 
in the family the family story is she was killed coming home from church but the truth was she was coming home she had gone to church and then she went to the package store and the family had taken away her keys and so she walked to the you know to the, down to the center and bought two pints of vodka and then made her way home and when she was killed she was um, hit by a car and killed she still had one full bottle of vodka in her pocketbook, which didn't didn't get broken. I remember hearing, I was like a little kid with the big ears, you know, when this all happened. So, the, and the reason I'm sharing that story is it really did define, um, it gave me a consciousness about about addiction that I wouldn't have had. So I'm grateful that my mother did did tell me that story. But like, like most of us, I just went along in my life thinking, oh, that's, you know, that's part of my family history, but it's not me. It didn't stop me from, from drinking. And, you know, I, I got married. I married a man that was 14 years older than I was. He was a, you know, a wonderful person, a Harvard-educated doctor. And also in my generation, you know, I'm 68 years old, just to give you an idea, you know, the idea was you married a doctor, you didn't become a doctor, which is sort of sad when I look back on it, but that's the truth. And that, you you know, you married well coming from the environment that I came from. And so I, I married my doctor and I thought, you know, oh, this is going to be wonderful. Life is just going to be fabulous. And didn't this doctor turn out to be an alcoholic? So that really changed my life a lot but it also was a gift in lots of ways because I was drinking right along with him but I wasn't drinking to the extent that he was drinking and um, I think that um, we did I we had we did an intervention he went into treatment and I went to the treatment program to the family program with him and so that was another defining moment because it really, I learned a lot about addiction at that point. I had had this history of knowing that my grandmother was an alcoholic. And so when I went to this family program and they, you know, explained to us that the genetics of alcoholism and it was just like this light bulb moment that I had that I have the potential of being an alcoholic myself. I had, I was so codependent that I had to focus on my, on my husband at the time. If he would just get well, everything would be okay. And fortunately I had a very good um, therapist at the center that, that said alcoholism is a family disease. You are, you need treatment just as much as your husband needs treatment. And I remember at the time being, somewhat insulted because I was really there in the guise of I'm here to support him in any way I can. And he said, you know, let's talk about your drinking. And I was pretty open about the fact that, you know, I, I drank not to the extent of my husband, but you know, I was probably at that point drinking, at least having a drink or a glass of wine every day. And he was very clear about the fact that that was not a good idea for someone that has a history of alcoholism in her own family and has also been living with alcoholism. So, you know, that really did start my journey in many ways towards sobriety for myself. 
but I was still going to a 12-step program for friends and families of alcoholics. And, but the, the counselor said, well, you know, why don't you give up alcohol for a year? If you don't have a problem, that shouldn't be a problem. And I remember thinking, why should I do that? You know, I'm not the one with the problem. That, that whole story that goes along with a lot of um, codependents. But at the time, I decided that I was going to do that. And what I recognized is it was not that easy to do. You know, I did do it. I gave up alcohol for a year, and then I never, I never drank again. But that was a wonderful thing, I think, for that, for that counselor to say, because the question was not, are you an alcoholic? The question was, is the, is the amount of drinking you're doing serving your life? And particularly, is it going to, how is this going to fit in with your husband having to live a sober life? And I see that that's the question that's being asked more and more in today's recovery world. You know, it used to be that you'd ask the 20 questions, but I, I like the question, is alcohol getting in the way of you having the life that you want? And so that is my story about getting sober. And um, unfortunately, that marriage did not survive because my um, ex-husband now decided that he wanted to continue to drink. And at this point, I, I had enough knowledge and recovery under my own belt that I decided that really wasn't what I wanted in my life. And, and so we ended up getting a divorce, which was very traumatic, particularly for a woman who came from an environment where there were no divorces. You know, my family system, the, the, my, there probably should have been a few, but it was just not something that happened. And so I really do credit getting sober also with the courage to leave a marriage that wasn't working and stepping into my own life. You know, I mean, I really was living I had given, as I said, I had given my power away and I was trying to live through my husband. And that's really what a lot of women of my generation did. And that this journey was really the beginning of me having my life at the center of my own life, which I'm really grateful for. And, and I'm also grateful that my father um, was of the belief that he wanted all his children to have a college education. And it wasn't, it wasn't that common at, in, at that time for, for women to be as important to get an education for women as it was for men. And I had a lot of neighborhood women in my neighborhood whose brothers went off to college and they went to work. And so I'm grateful that my father felt that that was important for both his sons and daughters. But he did have this idea that, and women, would you could become a teacher or a nurse. So it wasn't like this big expansive thing, like go to school and do whatever you want to do. It was you'll be a teacher or a nurse. And um, But still, I was grateful that I had that undergraduate degree so that when I really did decide I wanted to become a therapist, that I I could go to graduate school and not have to start right from the beginning. So I, I feel like in lots of ways I've been an accidental uh, pioneer 
in recovery. It was, um, I'm grateful that I was able to do it in the way that I did it. But I also recognize that I have no trouble knowing that if I had not stopped drinking when I did, I probably would have stepped into dependency because I I think of it as being the use of alcohol, the abuse of alcohol, and then stepping into dependency, that continuum. And I was definitely in the use, abuse category and stepping into abuse. But I did not step into being physically or psychologically addicted. So I'm grateful for that. And that's why I'm so, I feel so passionate about um, early intervention. I think that if we can get to people, you know, the old philosophy was that people had to hit, hit bottom. And, and I think there's all kinds of bottoms. You know, my bottom at the time was the pain of being in a codependent marriage, the pain of going through, recognizing going through a divorce. There were, there were lots of bottoms, the pain of giving away my power to someone else. And um, there's no question in my mind that if I had continued drinking, with the, with those kinds of pains and trauma in my family history, that I would have stepped into dependency. I have no trouble, you know, understanding that. But I I'm grateful that that I didn't have to have that happen. And so I really that's one of the reasons why I want to keep talking about my story, and and letting people know that it isn't just about answering those 20 questions. It's about asking yourself that question. Is drinking serving my life? Definitely was not serving me. And I think it's one of the most important things that has happened in my life was entering recovery, as I, had, as I said earlier. And the other thing, the other um, defining moment was adopting my son. And um, that, I think, also was one of the main reasons why I decided to stop drinking at that time, because I really felt like I wanted, I feel like this child was such a gift, and uh, all children are, but I think there's something very special about when you adopt a child, you feel like somebody is giving you this incredible gift, and that I really wanted to be a good mother. And I felt that um, drinking on a daily basis was not, wasn't going to allow me to be the mother that I wanted to be to my son. And it really has was one of the, the, the tremendous gifts of recovery was I feel like I was able to be the mother that my son needed me to be, not necessarily the mother that I would have been if I had, if I had kept on the path that I was. And when, you know, once I put down alcohol, what popped up was food. And that's why I know that I'm definitely an addict because I'm looking for a place. Where can I, where can I ease these feelings of stress and anxiety? I'm, I turned, I oftentimes turn to substances. And when I was no longer drinking, food became the place that I turned to and sugar particularly. And I always had been very thin and suddenly I was carrying around an extra 25 pounds. 
And, you know, a lot of people will say, ah, 20, what's 25 pounds? But I knew that that 25 pounds was resting on my spirit. And it was also getting in the way of me having the life. I asked the same question. Is this eating the way I'm eating serving my life? And I think that's the beautiful part of recovery. Because if you stay on the journey, that question gets asked over and over and over again. And so you start out making choices between good and bad. And then the choices become between good and good. And then the choices become between good and better, and then better and best. And, you know, I think I made a good, between good and bad when I gave up drinking. I think I made a good choice when I got a divorce. I think I made a good choice when I decided that I wanted to eat in a healthy fashion, too. And, that, and I also see that it's a very holistic approach to recovery, that, you know, it's, it's the tip of the iceberg. You know, the, the giving up the alcohol really was just the beginning of my recovery journey. I really had to start and, and, and just take a look at, then I had to take a look at what, how am I feeding my body? Um, how am I exercising? Am I, am I exercising? Am I, am I doing self-care? And not in a perfectionistic way, but just in a healthy, holistic approach to things. And then it becomes, how am I handling my resentment? And when the anxiety, how am I going to handle this anxiety, which I never even recognized that I had anxiety until I started, stopped drinking and stopped using food as a way to manage my anxiety. And so I had to find other more holistic ways to handle my anxiety also. So my recovery journey has really been, you know, starting with codependency then putting down the alcohol then the food, then, then the, you know, then the anxiety. And now, even after 31 years of being alcohol free, there are still things that I'm, that are showing up, you know, workaholism, shopping, you know, that I can, I can turn to all sorts of ways to escape my, my life and my feelings. And I'm really committed to not doing that. I really want to live my life feeling the feelings, being as conscious as I can possibly be. And I feel by doing that, I am, I, I've remarried. Um, I, I, I was alone for 15 years, and, which was really a good thing for me to do. I really needed that time to have my life, particularly as a recovering codependent, to have my life be the center of my life. It was very easy for me to make somebody else the center of my life. And I really didn't think I would get married again, but I did. I met somebody after uh, 15 years of uh, being divorced and fell in love. Didn't expect that to happen at 54 years old either. And that's been a wonderful addition to my life. And you know, wonderful things happen in recovery. <laughs> if you just keep showing up, doing the next right thing, facing what needs to be faced, it's amazing the gifts that that we're given in recovery. So I know we want to leave time for for the questions. 
so I think that really gives you a pretty good idea of um, my recovery journey, unless you have any other questions you can think of. Well, I did jot down a few questions as you were talking. Um, And the first thing I want to ask you, with three decades of recovery under your belt, do you feel like there have been seasons to your recovery? Oh, definitely, definitely. You know, I think that, you know, it, it isn't this idea that you get on the recovery journey and then everything is perfect. It isn't. Life is life. You know, that's the paradox. It's, and I think that recovery really gives you the ability to handle the joy and the woe. You know, they go hand in hand. And there are different seasons, definitely different seasons. There are times when, you know, everything felt like it was going very well. And then there were times where my anxiety or the food addiction would pop up or different things would happen. But generally, I would have to say that most of the time I was falling forward <laughs> on this journey. But there are definitely have been, have been seasons. I like that language, falling forward. I've heard that before. And I think that's a good way to think of it because um, we'd look at recovery as not being healed and perfect, but of being, you know, progress, not perfection. And um, yeah. especially when you have sort of multiple issues that you're working on, uh, sometimes uh, it, different things pop up. On, on one of our message boards, a friend of mine wrote that she'd heard someone say that being in recovery is like having three garbage cans and two lids. <laughs> and uh, you're, something is always, Definitely. you know, a vulnerable. Yeah, uh, I thought that was a good way to think of it. I was also going to mention to you, I, I, I um, subscribe to a lot of recovery newsletters, uh, including Smart Recovery, which is an excellent monthly newsletter. And I see this week that they have released some new language that they're using. So I have always touted the importance of abstinence-based recovery. That's what I am seeing as what recovery means to me. No drugs, no alcohol. But because of the opioid addiction, and then there's some controversy people have about thinking that when you're talking about abstinence-based recovery, does that mean that you can't use medication, suboxone, or methadone to treat opioid addiction? So Smart Recovery has changed their language to use, instead of saying they are promoting abstinence-based recovery, they say abstinence-oriented recovery, with abstinence as being the goal that we're working towards, but for some people, they may need to do harm reduction in order to get there. So all of this to say that language has, has mattered for a long time, and it continues, I think, to be even more important as we go forward. So as someone who talks a lot about recovery, helps other people with recovery, and I know that you're very invested in working towards breaking down the shame and stigma that people feel around recovery. Are you careful with the language you use? And what do you find are the terms that you are most drawn to and feel are most useful, not just in terms of, you know, talking about abstinence, but just what what are some of your thoughts on language and how we approach language? Yes, just in, in general, I'm not a big believer in labels, you know, and 
as a, as a therapist, we have the diagnostic manual. It must be four inches thick, you know, bipolar disorder, you know, borderline personality, you know, so many different labels that get put on people. And so I think it's, I'm a believer that you don't put labels on people. If people want to choose to call themselves an alcoholic or choose to call, call themselves, you know, say that they're borderline personality disorder or whatever it is, that's fine. But I don't, I don't believe in imposing labels, even in my psychotherapy practice. I just don't think that it's empowering. And I really do come from an empowerment strength based approach to things. And so you know, I, I think that we have to really, in order to break the stigma, we have to allow people to make those kinds of choices for themselves. I'm just curious how that affects on the ability to, do you diagnose people or do you let people help lead them to their own diagnosis or does the idea of diagnosing mm-hmm. even come into that? Yes, and unfortunately, you know, in the therapeutic world, not in the coaching world, but in the therapy world, because of insurance and all of those issues, people, they want a diagnosis. So I discuss it with clients. And most of the time, what I put down is a PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, because I believe all of us, everyone that I know in recovery can qualify for that diagnosis. We've had trauma in our lives We've had post-traumatic stress disorder. So I discuss it with clients and say, and I tell them, you know, in order for your insurance to cover this, this, this treatment, we need to have a diagnosis. And this is what I, what I put. And, and, and if they're okay with that, that's what I do. Or I'll do um, dysthymia, which is depression. And most people would also fall into the category of that kind of depression. I know I have myself or generalized anxiety disorder, but I don't really like doing personality disorder um, diagnosis, particularly for people in recovery, because you really can't put that kind of a diagnosis on anybody until they have, I believe, until they have at least a year or two of, of sobriety or abstinence because a lot of the behavior that goes on in active addiction is also the behavior that they're describing in personality disorders. So that's just been my philosophy and it has served me for the last 25 years. And I think it has served my clients. The idea then is that the behavior, the numbing behavior of fill in the blank. It's really a coping mechanism of trying to deal with trauma, depression, personality disorder, and it masks a lot of that. Yes. I feel like you're flipping the script a little from how I normally think of it because the way that I explain it to people is that I had to quit drinking so that I could heal what was underneath that, that I was, that was hidden by the drinking. And so, you know, I sort of think of that the drinking was like something I had to peel back and remove so that I could work on healing. And I need to continue to not drink because, you know, I'm going to need to continue to work on this, you know, for the rest of my life, that the healing is an ongoing process. 
And so I feel like you're flipping the script a little bit on that in, instead of, I mean, I'm thinking of the drinking as, as kind of the primary problem, but yeah, I, I like, I, that's so interesting. And this is why you're a professional. <laughs> this is what all this extra education and experience does is to really take it deeper. So one of the questions I think that, it's both, uh, I think it's both perspectives, both perspectives, right. you know, that yeah. we all have, you know, most of us have some childhood issues you know, I don't think anybody's had the perfect childhood. And I think to be human is to have anxiety and depression at different times. I don't think that that is abnormal, you know. And I think that unfortunately in our culture, lots of times we're being told that if we have anxiety and depression, that it's not, we have to do something about it. But there's a normal, a normal range of that. And I think people are being put on medication way too soon. And that with some good talk therapy and, and um, holistic treatment, they may not have to be on a medication. And I'm not anti-medication. I think it's thank God we live in the year two, you know, 2020 where we can avail ourselves of these wonderful medications. But I think lots of times they're being given to people prematurely. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that tends to be sort of the medical approach, right? When we go to a, a GP for these things, then we, we may come home with a prescription um, versus um, taking a more holistic approach. Now, I know that when it comes to recovery and mental health overall, um, I know you're a big believer in patchwork and that we we use as many patches as we can, as we need, and we can reinforce and change and, and learn. And so talk a little bit about patchwork recovery and how the idea of that has shaped your thinking and, and opened up um, new ideas and, and new yeah. ways to help people. Well, first of all, I think that things are changing, like what you were saying, from the medical model, where people are broken and in need of fixing, to an empowerment model, which is that we're all, we're naturally creative, resourceful, and whole. And that we're going to, that because we're human, we're going to have challenges to that wholeness at various times in our lives. And so it's really the, I, I, I love the positive psychology, which is for, we used to study just the pathology that, oh, this is what's wrong with people. Now we're studying gee, people that have a good and happy life, what, what are they doing? Maybe we can learn from them. And, and it's very much a strengths perspective. And so I feel like when you're talking about the patchwork, it's not just looking at, I, I, I'll have people come to my office and say, you know, I'm an alcoholic. And okay, but that's one of the things that you are, but you're lots of other things too. Let's talk about your strengths. And what are your values? And what do you like doing? And, you know, all of those kinds of things I think are so important. It's, it's designing a life that you love so that, that it will keep you on the recovery path. And so what's in that patchwork? You know, and, and I think there has to be something in that patchwork to cover mind, body, spirit. And for the, for the body, I see a lot of people doing yoga making sure that they're exercising regularly, eating right, you know, really tending to their diet, feeding their body like it's a temple. 
and and I I took a course last summer myself um, on yoga in the therapy office, some techniques that you can use when people come in, um, chair yoga that you can do for people that are depressed or anxious when they're coming to your office. So I love incorporating those kinds of things into you know, my, my work with people, but also my, my own recovery. So it's the physical and then the spiritual. I think it's, it's, you know, proven, you know, research has shown that people that have a spiritual base, not a religious base, but a spiritual base, whatever that means to you, developing that, having that be, be a part of people's patchwork, talking to people about what that means to them. And then mental you know, what are, what are the limiting beliefs that you might be carrying around that are getting in the way of your happiness? Because we know for sure that negative thinking doesn't serve us. And our thoughts are very powerful. And, and I do a lot of cognitive behavioral therapy. And that was really about becoming aware of what my thoughts are. And, and there's this, what they call the magic ratio, which is the Gottman research. For every negative thought, replace it with five positive thoughts. So changing our thought process. And actually, first it takes becoming aware of it. Lots of times people aren't even aware how many negative things they say to themselves each day and how many limiting beliefs that they're, they're reinforcing about themselves. So it's becoming aware of those things and then changing the thinking. And the philosophy is change the thinking and the feelings will follow. And so I, and I think that having some affirmations as part of, uh, as part of your patchwork, um, having a gratitude list as part of your patchwork, those are the kinds of things that can, help with the emotions and the feelings our affirmations are those sort of sentences that you read aloud read into a mirror i'm thinking of a saturday night live skit from the (laughs) the 90s i I know um, There's there's a lot of yes there's a lot of jokes about affirmations but there really is a lot of research base to show that feeding yourself, it's really just about feeding yourself positive thoughts. Like one of my mantras that's been with me for 30 years is my life is unfolding perfectly. And I have it on my desk. My life is unfolding perfectly. And it's just something about saying that. I remember no matter what I'm going through, it's okay. And so just whatever that might be for you, different people have different mantras or different affirmations, but find, I would say, find certain affirmations that speak to your inner soul. And then when things are happening, you can say them to yourself. And a few examples are, um, I deserve to be healthy. I am a worthwhile person and there is a place for me. I am lovable because I am here. Whatever, if you find yourself, like I had a client, um, I did a workshop, and I had a client, somehow, oh, we, we, were, we were discussing affirmations, and someone said, you are lovable, and she, said, and she said right back to her partner that she was doing this exercise with, no, I'm not, and it was like, oh, 
and she surprised herself. So it became for her, I, she realized, oh my gosh, it was just the first thing that came was, no, I'm not. So she started working on doing a mirror exercise. You are lovable. And she said she couldn't believe, she couldn't even look at herself in the mirror. And she had no idea that she felt this strongly about it. And so with, with affirmations and doing some mirror work, by the end of the workshop, it was so fantastic. She stood up and shared with the group. It was a group exercise and said, I, am, I can say it. I am lovable. And it was just, I thought, oh, this, this, is, this is a wonderful thing. And she didn't even really know that she felt that she wasn't. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it does. And as you talk about mirror work, too, I'm, I'm thinking about how, you know, sometimes at the gym and you see someone looking in the mirror and they're kind of watching themselves in the mirror. And I, yes. I, I see that as like they're, they're reaching for those positive affirmations, but they're finding them in maybe external temporary things. And so that's sort of fleeting, right? Um, so yes. if, you're, if your self-worth comes from, you know, looking in the mirror and feeling, okay, I look good or I don't look good or, you know, then that's a pretty hard thing to sustain, but to really look yourself in the eye and say, I am lovable. Um, there's no qualifier on that. There's no, I'm quali- not to say I'm lovable as long as I stay under X amount of pounds or earn X amount of dollars or look such and such a way, right? It's really, it's yeah. got to be uncompromising. Yeah. Yes, I think I think it's about feeding the soul and not the ego. Mm-hmm. Not that, you know, I don't have anything against the ego. We all have one. But it really is getting to the soul. That when it lands in the soul, it brings us forward in our lives in a way that's different. You know, it it gives us that core self-esteem instead of that situational self-esteem. And, you know, I had a lot of situational self-esteem. I was a good student. I was, you know, a cheerleader in high school. I was queen of the prom. You know what I mean? Like I married a doctor. I lived in a nice house. And I'm not minimizing those things. But my external life, my situational life, my situational self-esteem was okay. But my core self-esteem, I didn't even really know who I was. I was living out the script that was handed to me from someone else, from society, from my parents. And not that anybody meant to do any harm, but I really think it's about the, the beautiful part of therapy is helping people discover who they really are, who, what, their, what their gifts are, who, who they really are on, the, on that deep internal basis. And I think that's why I love this work so much, too, because you just see people blossom. And I really felt, you know, one of the questions that one of the people asked was about therapy, you know, as a therapist and um, being in the expert role. Do you have a hard time sharing your recovery because you're supposed to be an expert? And And I had to laugh because I thought, no, I've never identified with being an, you know, quote unquote, an expert. I'm just another human being on the highway of life, you know, doing, trying to heal. 
and and helping other people heal. And so it really is important to, to I think. And if and if you're going to anybody that's telling you they have the answers for you, I would say get out of the office as quickly as you can and run away <laughs> as far as you can. You know, I see myself as an imperfect human being with neuroses and problems and rough edges, just like anybody else. And most therapists, they're just human beings that happen to have some training. But don't expect them to to have your answers or to be the expert of your life. You're the expert of your own life. And, you know, we're, we're all works in progress. You know, I'm a masterpiece and a work in progress. That's, and so are my clients. And so don't have unrealistic expectations of therapists either. Because they're just a, human beings. I've, I've watched you talk with people and help them work through things. In the, the week we spent together on retreat, there were lots of really interesting conversations going on. And I, I yeah. really felt like a student watching the master as, as we talked, because you really have a gift for asking questions, not leading questions. I mean, sometimes we, we know when someone is kind of, they feel like they have the answer and they're asking questions that lead us to the answer, the conclusion they've already drawn. You have a way of asking questions that are just really curious and, and help people dig into the next level or go a little deeper. It's not a matter of knowing where you want to take them. It's just, I don't know, it's a real skill. How would you quantify that, I, Kathy? Like, what would you call that? Thank that you. They, thank you for saying that. that but I, yes. <laughs> I, I really have to say that it's doing your own work. I mm. think that as a therapist, I think it's so important to be in your own recovery journey and to have empathy for your own struggles. And then you can have empathy for other people's struggles. And I really do see myself as someone that holds the ladder for people. I don't climb the ladder for you. The client, we have to each climb our own ladder and be on our own journey. And that I really do know that I don't have the answers for people. I have a lot of questions to help guide people to their own answers. And I am there to help people heal, hopefully. You know, I hold the, sp- I, th- I hope that I hold a space, a safe, loving space where people can come and explore safely who they are and what they want. That's really what I feel a good therapist does is hold the space for people to come to their own answers. Yeah. Hold the ladder. I remember you saying that, that that's such a great way to explain it because we do have to do the work ourselves, but we have to trust the person holding the ladder for us. is strong and capable and trustworthy. And that takes, that takes time to develop that relationship. I want to get to these questions. I, I know I have a couple pages yeah. of questions. And they're great questions. So the first one I want to ask you is um, what advice do you have for um, getting the most out of sessions for someone who comes to you focused on their addiction issues? What I, what I believe the best thing, um, and this person also said they had a limited amount of time to do, not so much time, but finances. And mm-hmm. so what I would say is work out an individualized written treatment plan with your therapist. And remember that it's a co-creation. 
that together, you know, that you can brainstorm uh, solutions. You know, there's going to be an assessment part of, of, you know, really what you do is people come in, we define what the issue is, we collect, I collect as much data from the client as I can, and then we brainstorm alternative solutions, and then we assess each solution, and then we select the solution, implement it, and then evaluate. So those would be the steps I would say for someone. And, and to come up with an individualized written treatment plan. And I like to use the SMART. Have you heard of that um, method? It's, it's SMART, and it's S is be specific about what it is that you want and, and what you see is where you're headed. Be as specific as you can be. Have it be measurable. Have it be achievable have it be realistic and timely. So that's an easy acronym, an an acronym to remember, SMART, S-M-A-R-T. So in other words, let's say that you're going, she said she's going to a a therapist to help her with her addiction issue. Okay, so the goal, it sounds like she already has a goal in mind. What is it? Do you want to be sober? So that's very specific. I want to be sober. Okay, let's measure that. So we're going to do it. We can do it in two-week measurements. When you for two weeks, you're not going to drink. It's achievable. Two weeks is an achievable goal, right? It's realistic and it's timely because something has happened, obviously, to bring you to this point. You're always reassessing. You're always evaluating and reassessing. That's part of the process, and. And and relapse is a part of the process too. I mean, you know, I have not had a relapse in, in with alcohol, thank you God. But I've had relapses with food. I've had relapses with codependency. It's a part of the journey. So don't be so hard on yourself. And then I think it's very important to have a team in place. So if you know, that's something else that I do with my clients. Let's get your let's put your team in place, and and I think that that I I I like I don't know if you know the, there's a book called The Bigger Game, but it's Rick Tamlin, and he has come up with this idea that anytime you, I believe he 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 calls it having a bigger game in life, and I think anytime you're getting sober, you're playing a bigger game. And that if you're playing a bigger game, it's not something you can do by yourself. And he does these tic-tac-toe boards. Can you imagine that? You know, tic-tac-toe board. Mm-hmm. Just, and there's nine different squares, right? Mm-hmm. And so you want to have a person in each one of those squares that is supporting your bigger game of, get, of getting sober. We're using that as an example. But whatever it happens to be whatever happened to bring you into recovery. And I think that is what I would say is the number one thing that people don't feel like they have the support. So it's about really saying, okay, where can we, where can I help you get this support? And your therapist is just one person in your, on your tic-tac-toe board. You have to have other 
people, and it can't be it, it can't be this. It has to be a different person in each one of those squares. And I know that probably sounds a little bit challenging, but if you sit down and really think about it, what are family and friends that could be supporting you? Who are co- what they call co-players, other people that are on the journey of, to get sober? Fellow dreamers, um, a come in and get me person, someone that you, this is a person that you have shared, I want to get sober. And when they see you, you know, starting to, to rationalize your way, yourself away from that goal, you've given them permission to come in and get you and to say, oh, wait a minute, you know, this is what you told me you wanted. So can you see how that could be really helpful? Yeah, I really Having a can. support system. And nine people, that's, that's a lot of names. You're right. That is a lot of names to try and come up with, but it avoids the temptation of putting all of the emphasis on one person, your spouse, your sponsor, if you have a sponsor, yes. or a therapist, or um, your children, or you know your dog, or whoever you're leaning hard on, but to really realize that it's kind of a 360 support that you're looking to develop so that you have someone there to help you in, in whatever direction you stumble, that there's sort of someone around you that is, is in agreement with supporting you. And that again. Yes. And having, yes, having, having a, a mentor or a sponsor, whatever, you know, having, sometimes you have to go to expert resources. You know, you may need, um, and your recovery journey, you you may need to hire a lawyer for some reason. I don't, you know, whatever. But just knowing that that really you need to have nine, at least nine people. And I think that when when people recognize that, they go, oh yeah, you know, I'm not availing myself of the support that I really do, that's out there and is available. The first thing that comes to mind for me as you say that, Kathy, is that. Going to a recovery meeting of whatever flavor, and we'll talk about that too, there's built-in resources and connections in getting involved in a recovery community. A lot of people are afraid to do that or live in a community where they feel they can't or don't want to, and you know it's their choice whether or not they do. Do you feel like having online connections can, can fill in some of those squares, or do you think they all need to be in-person connections? I think that definitely the online presence is a powerful presence, but I would my own belief about this is at least half, if not more, of these supports need to be in person mm-hmm. because there's something about that personal contact that looking someone in the eye and, and feeling the person, you know what I mean? You can feel what's going on, that you really have a harder time doing when you're online or even on the telephone. And so I say to people, I want these to be in-person contacts as much as possible. But I, I, you know, I think that patchwork is whatever you want it to be. I mean, I I know myself, I have, uh, I met someone on retreat. You might've heard the, um, I think that, yes, it was on the She Can. um, she recovers podcast Mo and I had met her on my first Mexico retreat that when I went on and we have a scheduled call on Tuesdays 
and she's one of my support people. And we, and so, yes, it can be that someone that you've met that you have a, you have an ongoing call with, but, but that's it, one contact. You want to make sure that you have eight more, right? <laughs> is it important that um, a certain percentage of those also be people in recovery? Yes. I believe in, if, if recovery is your bigger game, that you want to hit, these are people that you want that understand the recovery journey. Friends and family is one of the squares. They don't necessarily have to, but they have to be at least supportive of recovery. You don't want to have people that are like, oh, you don't have to do that. You really want to have people that understand the journey that you're on and can support that journey. Another question that was sent in was just asking your thoughts on different types of recovery. You know, most doctors, for sure, their AA is the program, Alcoholics Anonymous, that they're most familiar with, and I think it's the one that most people are most familiar with. But, of course, there's other programs. There's um, Celebrate Recovery, Smart Recovery, Refuge Recovery, Life Ring, some Women for Sobriety. I'm just curious as to your thoughts on on what the different ones are and if, if they all work equally or if a person can engage in more than one at the same time. Yeah, I, I believe that one size doesn't fit all. <laughs> and that when someone's doing the one size fits all formula, be beware, you know, because there are many different ways to recover. I know when I w- was um, recovering 30 years ago, I think I told you about going to that um, treatment program with my ex-husband. They said, you go to the 12-step program for friends and family. You go to the 12-step program for for alcoholism. And there was no other choice. You know, that was what they told you 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 had to do. And that's basically what we did. So I feel like the 12-step programs are fantastic. I, you know, I, you know, I feel like I owe a lot of my recovery to them and I'm a great supporter of them. And I do think there's the research, I like to do things on a research basis. There has been some research to show they have tremendous success, but not for everyone, not for everyone. So I would say to people, someone that came to me, I would, I would give them choices. You know, I would say, you know, give, give AA a try, give Al-Anon a try, give the 12 steps. You know, there's, there's so many, they're free, there's, there's contact, but a lot of people don't want to do that in today's world. So there are so many other choices, as you were saying, online choices, um, yoga, holistic approaches. So if someone really feels that yoga is the way they want to do it, I say, go for it. You know, let's assess again in, in a month and see how things are going. And if, and if you're not sober in a month, then you, we need to add something else. One of my beliefs is that it's a full-time job. And I think in early recovery, the priority has to be recovery first. And family second, a very close second, but recovery first, family second, and work third. And again, recognizing that this is this is a big game that you're playing. This is something that requires a lot of attention, and you really have to be willing to to do things that you've never done. As a person who's in 
12-step recovery and following an abstinence path yourself, do you find it hard to, um, have you ever had to help someone that wants to moderate versus quit? Do you find that difficult to do? You know, I, I feel like I, I'm willing to try anything with people um, up to a point. You know, if, you know, if I feel like their store, that they really have had a low bottom, like I had a woman that came and she had had a DWI. Her, she was on the verge of getting divorced. Her daughter actually came to see me and tell me, you know, my mother really has a problem. But the woman was minimizing, 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 and she wanted to do harm reduction. And I felt like, okay, you know, let's start her somewhere, you know. So, but my goal, I have to be honest and say my bias, and someone else said that, do you have bias? Definitely you have bias because you you see people that I've seen lots of people over the 30 years that have said, I want to, I want to do it from a harm reduction point of view, but it hasn't worked. They end up getting another DWI or they, you know, they end up having all sorts of jackpots. I say to people, let's, you know, let's give it a try, but ultimately I think that where you are in your, on your journey, and I think that's another very important point to make, is, is where, you know, where are you in the change cycle? I know you've talked about this before on, on, the, on the podcast, on the bubble hour. Are you in pre-contemplation, contemplation? Have you made a decision, but you haven't taken any action yet? Are you in maintenance? And I always add celebration as one of the stages of recovery, because I think we have to celebrate what we've achieved. When we've made a big change, we have to remember to add celebration to those stages of change. But lots of times I have people identify, where are you on this change cycle? And, and if, they're in, if they're in contemplation, they're just thinking about it then um, let's at least talk about harm reduction. And, you know, you, you, you'll make a commitment not to drink and drive. You'll make a commitment to do these things to keep people safe. I think it's worth having that discussion. But my goal is, is to move them, and move them along in the change cycle, move them to the, to the next stage for their own good, you know, for their own benefit. But I can't mm -hmm. force anybody into anything. So with young people, the mm -hmm. idea the, the idea is to say to someone, you're never going to be able to drink again, ever. And they're 19 years old. You know, so I do have that discussion with young people about harm reduction. And that the goal is abstinence, but let's start here. Mm -hmm. And I think it just opens the door. They, they see you not as being so definite, like it has to be done this way. I like to join with the clients. I mean, that's what we're there for. It's to take yourself out of the equation as the ther therapist and, and bring the client forth in that session. What do you want? What's your truth? Do you feel like that's a, an important conversation people should have with a therapist, you know, early on or as they're choosing a therapist is what their bias is on recovery and uh, abstinence versus harm reduction? Or do you think that, that um, most therapists can 
set aside their bias and work towards the goal of just moving that person forward in their own goals? You know, that I know that I was at one time, I was the regional clinic director in a large mental health early on in my career, and I oversaw 50 therapists, you know, supervised um, 50 therapists. Not each, they also had a, their own supervisor, but I overlooked their supervision. Does that make sense? And there are a lot of therapists that don't know anything about addiction. You know, the truth of the matter is the, our training, we get a course in addiction at the, in the train. I think where I did my training, they had a good program for addiction, but a lot of programs don't. And so you have a lot of therapists that are coming out of school and they really don't understand addiction. So I would say buyer beware. I think you need to interview the therapist and you need to ask them. Are you familiar with with treating addiction? What is your philosophy of treatment? Tell me a little bit about your experience in this area. Because, you know, not all therapists are created equal. I mean, I, I, you know, it's just like doctors. You know, you're not going to have a pediatrician doing brain surgery. And you're not going to have a, a gynecologist doing dermatology. Well, it's the same thing with therapists. Therapists have different training, and not all therapists are in a position to treat addiction. They don't know enough about it themselves to be able to really do a good job. That's the truth of the matter. One and, of the questions that was asked was that one of the ladies felt like she had been sort of poo-pooed by therapists when she talked about her addiction. And she wondered if it was a cultural thing among therapists. Did they, but do you think that's an education thing, that maybe they just don't have enough education about it? You know, it's a combination of things. Like I was saying before, I think that therapists are people just like the general population. And I actually had a, had a therapist that I was overseeing, and they had a substance abuse problem, you know, and we had to, to do an intervention. So, you know, the, and so if you, I, I think the question that she had asked was that she had someone gone to someone and they had normalized her drinking. And she felt like, wasn't that some, something like that? Uh-huh, and, uh-huh. you know, I would, I would say, you know, whether you, whether you have a, an issue or not. And so if the therapist is normalizing if you're going to someone and saying, I think I have a problem and they're normalizing it, they're not, they're not listening to you. That's about them and not about you. You know, as I said, there are therapists that don't know about addictions. There are therapists that are drinking addictively and the, and they, they don't recognize it as being a problem. Just like, just like the reg, in the regular population. So you do have to be very careful. If, if sobriety is your goal, I think that you have to make sure that it's, it's a goal that, it, that the therapist will support. Right. Because everybody in your tic-tac-toe board needs to be supporting your recovery. <laughs> They're poo-pooing. Yeah. They get kicked off the board. One of the questions uh, that was posed was whether or not you had a fear of getting into trouble with the licensing board about disclosing 
uh, your uh, recovery. Is that a concern for therapists? It's not a concern for me because I, I is licensed after I, I've been sober for 31 years and I've been a therapist for 28 years, I think it is. So, you know, it was, that was never a consideration, but I also think that, you know, I've, I've also healed any shame that I have over being a human being. We're all human beings. We all have issues the licensing board is there will support anybody to get into recovery. And so I don't think people have to be that fearful if they're sober, if they're drinking, you know, of course you have to be fearful. Right. But if you're in recovery, what I see is that it's being celebrated in, um, in most areas and particularly people that understand it. The licensing board knows that you've been in recovery for 31 years. They're like, good for you. If someone is a mental health professional and, and knows that they need help, does it make it scary for them to ask for help because they're not in recovery yet? They're not sober yet. I have a tendency to have to treat therapists. It just That's just how it's worked in my practice. And it, I think that like anything, you have to take your time about living your recovery out loud. You really want to make sure that you're secure in your own recovery before you, you know, it's not easy because people do have comments and they have opinions about things. So I would say to people, you have a right to do it. To your, your anonymity is honored. And of course, in therapy, of course, with therapy, it's, it's honored anyway, there's confidentiality. So you could call a therapist that you know that, that works in addiction, ask around about it, and go and see someone. You don't have to be concerned that they're going to report you or anything like that. It's a process. And you deserve support just like anybody else. Do you disclose to clients that you're in recovery yourself? Do you sort of save that for when it's right? Or is that front and center in everything you do? Yeah, it's pretty front and center, but it's not, again, I don't think that the therapist is supposed to be the center of therapy, the client right. is, <laughs> yeah. and, and, and so I'm not the center of therapy, you know, um, but if somebody asks me about it, I'm very honest about it, and, and I'll also say, you know, tell me why that's important to you, and we'll talk about it, but it's, um, again, a good guide, a good therapist turns the attention away from themselves and towards the client. One question okay. people ask, and I know they're going to be curious about this, is have you ever seen clients in 12-step meetings? And are you afraid of that? And, you know, how do you navigate that when it happens? I have seen clients in 12-step meetings. And um, what, again, I think it ha that has to be client-centered. It's how the client feels about it. But there's two things that I would say. One is to discuss it with your client in the therapy session. You know, that I'm, you know, they, I'm in recovery. We live in a similar geographic area. We may run into each other. How do you want to handle that? Would you be comfortable with that? So you have a discussion with your client about it, but I, I, I have had it happen. And as a therapist, Anyway, you do you tell your clients, I will not acknowledge you 
if I see you outside of the the therapy office, you can acknowledge me and say hello, but I will not go over to you and say, oh, hi, because you never know. I, I ran into a client of mine in the grocery store and she was with her husband and, you know, and we had discussed this and she sort of, you know, made a little wink towards me, but I made sure I went down another aisle because she was in therapy and she hadn't told her husband. So, you know, I honor the client's confidentiality as much as I possibly can and still do my own recovery. So if I'm in a 12-step meeting, I've had to go the other way, too, where a client came up to me and started talking about an issue that we had been talking about in therapy, and she was telling me all about it, and I had to say, you know, can we, pick, can we discuss this in the next session? Because I really am here for my own healing. So it goes both ways, and, and as long as you can, you can take care of yourself and set the boundaries you need to set, but also make sure you let your clients know that that's what you're going to be doing so that they're not surprised by that and honoring, always honoring the client's confidentiality. So that comes once again, you, you, you didn't give me the answer I was expecting because when that, when that question was asked to me as a lay person, I'm thinking, uh, embarrassment and shame of running into clients in meetings like which wouldn't you be embarrassed or ashamed and here what you're saying is your primary concern is for them and for their anonymity and their confidentiality your secondary concern is for your own boundaries and for looking after yourself because that's why you're there so that is a very enlightening answer as far as I'm concerned Kathy because um I clearly you're operating on a higher plane than I do (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I don't know about that, but I've been doing it long enough that it's, it has gotten a little easier every year. We start where the client is at. That's the philosophy. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And, and, and the I client comes first. That you let them know that you won't be acknowledging them if you see them in public. I think it's important to do that because for someone who's, you know, a little with the codependency, like... I'll raise my own hand on that. <laughs> um, the people pleaser in me might feel have, my feelings might be hurt if I saw my therapist in public and she didn't acknowledge me. So it's good to know that when they're doing that, that that is out of respect for you, not out of disrespect. When someone comes to you with multiple issues, so addiction, trauma, PTSD, um, or multiple process addictions, like maybe gambling or love addiction or something like that. Do you treat everything at once, or do you choose one thing and work on it? What order do you work on things? Yeah, you know, there's di- there's different schools of thought on that, Jean. And um, they used to believe that treat the addiction first and deal with the trauma later. But now the the new school the new school of thought is to simultaneously treat trauma and addiction. Acknowledge the trauma is is has something to do with the addiction and the addiction has something to do with the trauma and and you end up getting in this one of these loops that you can't get out of and i remember that i had a client that had been sexually abused as a child this was about 20 years ago and they and they really were treating it saying we're not going to deal with the sexual abuse we're going to get the person sober first and then deal with the sexual abuse. And, and it did seem to me that when she was, when, when 
she was trying to stuff it down, it was caught, it wasn't helping her recovery. So I saw that treating that simultaneously was helpful. But it is individual. In other cases, sometimes it's, you know, we call it compartmentalizing. Sometimes it's good to compartmentalize an issue and, and work on your sobriety. Know, I always say to people, knowing that we're, I don't want you to stuff those feelings, we, that definitely has to be addressed. The attitudes towards healing, those are always changing and improving, and, which is a darn good thing. Yeah. It should always evolve and grow. Yeah, it's always evolving and growing. And, and therapy is like that, too. It's an organic process. I, I love that. And I thought, I thought one of the questions about catastrophizing might be a good one to, to finish up on. Uh, the question was that she's in black and white thinking in early sobriety. And what are some of the things that she can do? And, you know, I, I love the, have you ever heard the Velcro Teflon theory? The human condition is such that we oftentimes have the brain will Velcro the negative and Teflon the positive. And what we really want to learn to do in any kind of therapy, but particularly in recovery, recovery from addiction, where there is so much negativity, we want to learn to Velcro the positive and Teflon the negative. And I just think that's a, that's a nice little um, visual. I know it's helped me. And the way to do that is, as we had said before, affirmations, writing yourself love letters, gratitude lists. Changing the thoughts and the feelings will follow. Focus on your strengths. Those are the kinds of things that help you to, that can help you get out of that catastrophizing. That's a really interesting way of thinking of it too. So even if you catch yourself dismissing something positive that's happening, stop and pay attention to it. Right? Just pause. Catch yourself doing that, and and yes, uh, and maybe you know think of a little ping in your head like. Oh, I gotta add that to my gratitude list, you know, instead of just dismissing it. And how many times does someone tell us we look nice or they like our our I don't know, our hair or shoes or something and, and we say, Oh, these this old thing or oh, you know, oh, it's just a such and such and instead of saying thank you and accepting that compliment, in which case you're adding it to your your well, there's your Teflon and Velcro, right? I mean, accepting a compliment is literally hanging onto it versus dismissing it. Catastrophizing the black and white thinking. Are you saying it's okay to hang on to black and white, but flip it, like stick more to the positive? Or should we try to get into that gray zone of it's okay to not be good or bad? Do we need to live a little more in the in-between where maybe it doesn't matter if we don't judge everything? Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. It's, it's, it's the human condition. It's the human condition. Do you know that the, that it's, it's being more comfortable with the uncomfortable learning to be able to tolerate, gee, I feel sad today, or I'm feeling a little depressed or I'm feeling a little anxious without feeling like I have to run away from it, but also not grabbing onto it and going down that black hole sometimes that those thoughts and feelings can take us where they can take us. So it's, it's including it all and just recognizing, I think it's so important to normalize this whole range of feelings. 
it's not black or white. There's there's so many other areas in the middle, and welcoming all of those feelings because they're part of they're part of the human experience, and they really end up enriching our lives if we don't run away from them. Kathy, before I let you go, I'm wondering if you'll tell me a little bit about the sharing circles that you do on Cape Cod and also the retreats that you are organizing. I recently became a She Recovers coach, which is really fun. I love being a continuous learner and doing different things all the time. And one of the things that I'm doing is a share circle Um, Cape Cod, She Recovers Cape Cod Share Circle on Sundays once a month from 4 to 6. And we have a beautiful location where we're having it and somebody has offered us the space and we have it all to ourselves. And it's just a wonderful place for women to come together. And there's a topic each month. And these topics are are the same topics that are being shared all over the world. I love that thought. And we now have sharing circles in Paris and, uh, as you probably know, all over the world. And to think that other women are are discussing these same topics. And it's just an opportunity because we see a lot of peer-led groups in in the recovery community, but we don't see a lot of professionally led groups. And, you know, you know, I'm a therapist and a coach and people can come and, and have professionally led groups for a minimal cost. And they're very, um, I think, very helpful. And they're also for women that we've had women that have never, wouldn't be comfortable going to, to another environment, but they're comfortable knowing that these groups honor confidentiality and that they are professionally led. So there's that other option for them in our in our Cape Cod community. And then also we're going to be offering, She Recovers is going to be offering a retreat here on Cape Cod, hopefully in 2021, not in 2020, but we're in the process of organizing that. So that'll be um, something that will be available also. And you also have sharing circles in Boston coming up in the future? Yes, uh, my colleague Claire Garrity is, and I are going to be. We wanted to get the Cape Sharing Circles up and running, and now we're going to be opening one in Boston. And also, same Junico, which is a um, exercise facility, has offered their space. So we have this wonderful space to use in the Boston area. So we're going to be starting those. I think our first one is in May. So. Look for that and go. you can go on the She Recovers website and look up Share Circles and you'll find all these different Share Circles listed all over the world. That's amazing. Where can our listeners um, learn more about you and connect with you if they would like to reach out? Well, I have a website, um, lifecoachtherapy.com. So you can go there and you can just look up Kathy Robbins, Cape Cod Therapist, and I'll pop right up. That's the easiest way. And if anybody wants to email me, I have an email, Kathy underscore Robbins at Comcast.net. And I'll put the link for your website in the show notes. So listeners, if you're listening to this on a podcast app, just 
scroll down on your phone and you'll see a link there for Kathy's website as well. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with Thank me you, and these listeners today. Oh, I just, I love so much. I learned so much from you. Um, and I really, really appreciate the way that you shine your light and care for others and, and encourage us all to expect the best of ourselves and offer the best of ourselves to one another. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for for inviting me, Jean, and thank you for shining your light so brightly in the world. I I enjoy the bubble hour so much, and and so many of my clients, I've told them about it, and they love it too. So thank you for all that you do for the recovery community. Well, it is my pleasure and my honor, really, because, gosh, I... I I get to talk to so many amazing people and then I get to get emails from so many amazing listeners who often go on to become guests on the show. So I feel like I'm a, a cog in a really interesting machine here and I'm really honored to be part of it. And I'm, I'm glad that we met and I'm thankful for you sharing your wisdom today. Thanks for listening, everyone. Okay. Until next time, do take good care. Not proud, but that was me And when I face it, I take back a little dignity Not looking for excuses I just want to be free from power Weakness had on me In a dark corner is where shame lies behind We think you're strong it just stays and wait there to rob you of your pride. Turn the light on, turn the light on, you can shine. When you see oh, I did that. Not proud that that was me, and when I face it, I take back a little dignity. I'm not looking for excuses, I just want to be free from power. Just want to